I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast supported by Pragati, a flagship media initiative of the Sakshashila Institution. We are a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like to bring fresh perspectives to Indian affairs and an Indian perspective to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello, and welcome to All Things Policy. About eight hundred years ago, the world was in turmoil. The Third Crusade had come to a bloody end for the Crusaders. The Delhi Sultanate was being formed after the defeat of the Tomaras. You had the stirring of the Mongols in Central Asia, and it was at this time, around the year twelve fifteen, that the Rudreshwara, or what is now known as the Ramapa Temple, was built in modern Telangana. This temple was just been declared a UNESCO World Heritage Site in July, and it was, of course. Uh, one of the architectural marvels of the kakatiya dynasty but who were the kakatiyas what we're going to attempt today is to do a sort of everything you wanted to know about the kakatiyas but didn't know whom to ask and i have the perfect person with me whom we can ask those very questions i have anirudh uh, and he's a big kakatiya nerd and i'm just looking <laughs> forward to learning everything about this dynasty from him so welcome anirudh hello what is up to Hey, so we've had this temple, uh, you know, finally being recognized, becoming this UNESCO World Heritage Site. But can you just tell us, you know, just give us some context? I'm sure a lot of our listeners are actually very well versed in Indian history, but may not know much about the Kakatiyas. I'm one of them. You know, we covered the Kakatiyas a bit in our own podcast, uh, Yudha. But you know, if you were to ask me more than say a couple of questions about them, I'd draw a blank. And it's really hard to find information about. this dynasty and about their achievements uh, you know if you look at normal trade publication histories that are available so you know i just if you can just place the context for us who were the kakatiyas that's a good question and um, let me just say at the outset that i highly recommend this fantastic book by cynthia talbot it's called uh, pre colonial india in practice and it's a fantastic exploration of the inscriptional record of the kakatiyas and comes up with some very very interesting inferences about the nature of their society and their polity. Um with that said let's actually talk about who the hell these guys were. So as some of our listeners may know uh, and as you definitely know that yeah I've actually been working on a book about the medieval Deccan uh, that begins in roughly the 7th century and brings this timeline up to the 12th century and um the kakatiyas first really while I was while I was doing the research for this book I happened to have come across what might be one of the earliest actual mentions of the kakatiyas um this dates to around the 11th century or so um when the two great powers of southern india the choras and the chalukyas uh, were going at it like cats and dogs um specifically in i think around 1046 or 1047 uh when the chora emperor rajadhiraja chora had managed to penetrate deep into the deccan um he had caused a whole amount of chaos and turmoil he had uh burned down quite a few cities he had ransacked a number of temples he was setting up victory pillars and then gradually kind of advancing to uh, the capital of his deadly uh, rivals the chalukya dynasty uh, which was called kalyana and uh, when he got there he found to his surprise that the chalukyas had actually escaped and um, soon after that we find inscriptions which mention that or at least wherein the chalukyas claim that they burned down the gates of the city of kanchi um and supposedly involved in this attempt to burn down the gates of kanchi were um a, an individual from telangana a chap called i think prola or beta and um 
he's given the title of Kakati Vallabha in the Chalukya inscription, which is very interesting because the imperial title of the Chalukyas was Sri Prithivi Vallabha, which means fortune's favorites and earth's beloved. And clearly they were, um, the Kakatiyas had performed an invaluable military service for the Chalukyas by somehow getting to Kanji, creating some kind of diversionary attack there, uh, thus forcing Rajadi Raja Chora to kind of abandon his conquest in the Deccan and kind of head back uh, to secure his power at home. Um, all this is very interesting. And um, it, we need to see this this early mention of the Kakatiyas within the broader context of how uh, the Kalyana Chalukyas really played geopolitics. Um, the Kakatiyas are not the only minor dynasty who uh, are mentioned as performing military services for the Chalukyas. In southern Karnataka, for example, near Bangalore, where the Takshila institution is based, we know of a dynasty called the Hoysalas. And the Hoysalas, especially the early kings of the Hoysalas, uh, claim to have fought alongside uh, or under Chalukya generals and rulers in Malwa and Chhattisgarh. Uh, these are very, very far away from their home base, uh, just as Kanchi is very, very far away from the Kakatiya's home base, which is Telangana. And um, one possible explanation for all of this is that the, what the Chalukyas were doing is that they were extending their power into various regions by cultivating ties with a number of local warrior peasant families. Um, the Kakatiyas were one among many, many such families in Telangana who were attached to the Chalukya court. And for all of these families serving in, in these distant campaigns under this powerful imperial formation in order to get wealth, status and prestige was a great way to kind of establish their power in their own home regions. Very interestingly, for example, the Hoysalas are believed to have originally been um, tribal chieftains who lived in the Western Ghats, gradually extended their power into the agrarian regions of Gangavadi, which was southern Karnataka. And uh, from there were kind of picked up by the Chalukyas, uh, eventually raised up to the status of territorial governors, and then from there became independent rulers. Um, roughly the same thing happens with the Kakatiyas as well. By the late 12th century or so, the power of the imperial center in Kalyana, the capital of the Chalukyas, is in decline. And many of these small dynasties, which have risen up to status um, over the last generation or two in various areas, start to uh, aspire to royal pretensions. So, for example, you see the Hoysalas, um, while still claiming the title of Mahamandaleshwara or a great lord of the circle, generally used as a kind of designation for a vassal lord, while they're still claiming that title, they start to build enormous temples uh, such as the Chandakeshava or Vijayanarayana Swami uh, temple at Belur. And similarly, the Kakadiyas also roughly by the late 12th, 12th century or so um, start to kind of throw off the shackles of Chalikya power and kind of do their own thing. Again, to emphasize, there was there was really no guarantee that the Kakatiyas were going to be the rulers of Telangana. They were not um, destined by the gods uh, to come and save Telangana, no matter how much they claim it in their inscriptions. Um, rather, they were just one among many, many chiefly families that rose to status by participating in the wars of larger imperial formations and then gradually kind of gained the means uh, to rise up in their own right. That's really fascinating. So these are basically small time warlords or, you know, people who act as auxiliary forces for the Chalukyas. Right. Uh, and like you said, uh, you know, in later inscriptions, they talk about how they are saviors. Uh, can you just tell us how uh, you go from being this, uh, for, you know, petty chieftain or warlord to becoming a royal? Uh, you know, how do you go about legitimizing yourself? So from the mid or really from the early 12th century is when the Kakatiyas are starting to go to wars in their own right. Um, so their original center of power is Hanam Konda, which is near modern day Warangal. And that's where you can see their earliest temples. And um, 
from there they kind of expanded their power into other regions of telangana and by up to that point they were still calling themselves mahamandaleshwara they were still uh, claiming legitimacy by claiming to be connected to the chalukyas but by 1163 or so this very very interesting individual comes to the throne his name is ganapati deva i may have gotten the years mixed up is it 1163 or 1183 but it doesn't matter um ganapati deva is the most important of the early kakatiya kings because he is the first among them to actually claim the title of an independent ruler he calls himself maharaja dhiraja great king among kings um he extends his power by actually raiding into coastal andhra pradesh um which is again quite interesting because up till that point coastal andhra pradesh had been the real kind of cultural and economic and religious center of the telugu speaking countries uh, it had been actually fought over through many generations uh, by the choras and the chalukyas um, and it had absolutely been devastated uh, through all of these wars which left more or less a power vacuum which the kakatiyas were very easily able to kind of expand into from telangana you see the you see ganapati deva appearing on the coast you see him making donations to these much older shiva temples which were much more uh, which were much more well established and you see him for example you see him taking over this port called motupalli uh, which was the most important uh, one of the most important ports in in kosalandra and you see him claiming that he's subjugated the lords of all the areas near motupalli and he has promised traders that they can go about and do their business um, without interference from these bandits Uh, which is very interesting and it kind of replicates a pattern that we have seen elsewhere on the coast especially along the west coast where you would have a number of local chiefs each of whom would control maybe one or two ports and all of whom would try to either pirate or kind of attack um Uh, traveler uh, traveling merchants or just try to attack their shipping and capture their goods for themselves um it was almost like a seasonal activity um every season um just as nomads would move from place to place you would have some of these bandit chiefs uh, moving from port to port and like trying to loot ships that were there whereas in the western coast of india generally because you have the western ghats separating them from what's happening in the inland deccan um you see that these west coast ports tend to be relatively independent uh, when there are dynasties in control then they tend to be dynasties along the west coast itself but it's different on the east coast because geopolitically speaking there isn't really much of a barrier between the inland deccan and the east coast um, the eastern ghats aren't really as much of a barrier to the movement of armies as the western ghats are so what the kakatiyas do is they kind of extend their power into coastal andhra they seize control of the port and they use it as a means to kind of get access to horses and all the luxurious trade goods of uh, the uh, eastern indian ocean trade world and use that again to buttress their power further and further um ganapati deva's predecessors had kind of also kind of moved towards this pattern for example they were responsible for building some pretty impressive fortifications at warangal as well as a temple which is no longer extant the swayambhu shiva temple um which was at the center of the city of warangal in fact if you go to warangal today you will still see these four massive gateways or toranas that were positioned at each entrance to the swayambhu shiva temple it is hypothesized by the architectural historian philip wagner that um, the swayambhu shiva temple had at its center a lingam of shiva with faces on each of its uh, on each of its sides uh, and there would have been four entrance ways to the temple with so basically the impression that would have been created was that essentially each of shiva's faces looking out uh, through one of the cardinal directions through these enormous gateways that the kakatiyas built out into the world kind of representing the emanation of uh, kakatiya power uh, into the four directions so 
essentially see this cocktail of um, cultural, religious, and military power that is being used to justify their rule. You see them, especially Ganapati Deva, you see him kind of patronizing Brahmins, patronizing temples, doing that kind of stuff. So he's really very much replicating a model of Deccan kingship that had been first established by the Chalukyas, and he's kind of importing it and, and transplanting it into Telangana to kind of associate himself with this cultural cosmopolis and kind of exalt himself over all the other lords of Telangana. Right. That is so amazing. That's really amazing because, uh, you know, you you can tell how uh, both the geography of the region uh, and and the politics uh, of that entire area conspire really to create this uh, new power center. But uh, Anirudh, what I, I, you know, what I really want to understand is once this power center is created, how does it relate uh, with its neighbors? I mean, uh, I take it, you know, that not everybody is going to be as welcoming, right? So this is this is, in a sense, upsetting the established order. So how does how do the Kakatiyas deal with what we would now call foreign policy? That's an interesting question. Like Generally speaking, the late 12th, early 13th centuries were decades of absolute churn all over the Indian subcontinent. Um, one of the most important things that happened in southern India during those decades, for example, uh, was uh, essentially the destruction of the great city of Kalyana, uh, this metropolis that was once the Chalukya capital, um, in rather confusing and murky circumstances. Um, according to um, various texts, especially those composed by the Veda Shaiva and Lingayat traditions, um, what happened around this time was that this uh, warlord who was formerly subordinate to the Chalukyas um, overthrew them, drove them away from the city and took over the city of Kalyana for himself. And one of his ministers was a chap called Basavanna. And Basavanna happened to be a member of this uh, tradition called the Veera Shaivas or the uh, heroic Shaivas. These were people who came from all kinds of social backgrounds. We have, we know of over 300 Veera Shaiva poets and they come from uh, backgrounds as varied as, you know, a, a prostitute, um, a shoemaker, uh, a, a thread spinner, um, as well as ministers like Basavanna and like actual mendicants like Allama Prabhu, for example. And um, the Veera Shaivas were very much against this entire aristocratic kind of system that the Chalukyas had created. Uh, the Chalukya, uh, Chalukya power really depended on uh, these aristocratic, usually Brahmin lineages, who were directly under the thumb of the Chalukya emperor, um, who would essentially act as his agents, as his generals, and as, as his administrators, as his scribes. And eventually, the, these Brahmin lineages themselves uh, became powerful landed magnates in their own, li- in their own right. Um, Virashaiva poetry describes Kalyana itself in in rather morally grey ways. Um, on the one hand, a lot of them are kind of awed by just the sheer size and magnificence of the city, uh, but they also speak of a society that is profoundly, profoundly uh, misogynistic and profoundly divided by caste. So in the late 12th century, uh, there seems to have been some series of incidents by which the aristocracy of Kalyana tried to lash back against the Veera Shaivas, which ended in the in the assassination of this Kalachuri dynast called Bijala, who had taken over the city from the Chalukyas. And soon after that, there seems to have been, the city itself seems to have been destroyed. Um, we have no idea how. Uh, one can imagine they tried to set up, for example, an egalitarian religious theocracy or something, and this was destroyed uh, by um, by aristocrats of other lineages who preferred this much more hierarchical kind of interpretation of religion. Uh, because we see, for example, that 
um, the dynasties that succeeded the Chalukyas in various parts of the Deccan, uh, such as, for example, the Seyona Yadavas in Maharashtra, were obsessed once again with kind of raising up Brahmins to high status within their territories. Uh, we see Brahmins being used as ministers, composing these compendia of, you know, um, Vedic interpretations and so on. Um, and keep in mind, the Virashavas had actually rejected the authority of the Vedas. So it's possible to kind of read this as a kind of reactionary movement uh, to the radical social philosophy of the Virashavas. Um, similarly, um, just as the Senevadavas had risen in uh, Maharashtra, you see uh, the Hoysalas, which I mentioned earlier, kind of rising up to imperial status in southern Karnataka. Uh, and the Hoysalas are widely believed to have been closely associated with the Sri Vaishnavas, which is yet another orthodox aristocratic movement which kind of originated um, in Tamilkam. And finally, here you have the Kakatiyas. The Kakatiyas, again, you can see under Ganapati Deva, they, they seem to be kind of leaning into this aristocratic means of justifying their power. But very interestingly, we know of a considerable amount of Virashaiva poetry that was actually composed within Kakatiya territories, such as the Basava Purana. And um, later Kakatiya kings generally were not as were not really interested that much in constructing or patronizing temples or setting up uh, Brahmin villages or Agraharams. So all of these kind of kinds of tells you, uh, and it's, it's again, it's, it's very difficult to establish all this given the states of the evidence, uh, but it seems that there's, there's, this, there's this enormous amount of social, religious, and political churn that is happening in the Deccan at this time, and the Kakatiyas are basically kind of surfing these waves to rise to power through whatever means necessary. And once they do that, I mentioned a little earlier that um, they had control of the port of Motupalli. And uh, from Motupalli, uh, the Kakatiyas imported enormous, enormous numbers of horses. Um, like we see for the first time in this part of the Deccan, um, hero stones, which depict individuals riding on horses um, and were evidently killed while they were riding on horses. Um, we see a number of inscriptions, not just of the Kakatiyas, but also their subordinates, uh, which mention like large amounts of cavalry, whose um, the dust from whose whose kind of blots out the sun, which again is 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 an interesting clue, and it and it's been interpreted by uh, Elizabeth Lambert, this British historian as being a potential sign um, that the Kakatiyas were trying to centralize royal power in a way that was very different from the way the Chalukyas were doing it. Though they initially tried to follow the Chalukya footsteps, they eventually moved towards trying to centralize power within the king himself uh, by importing large numbers of horses and cultivating ties with local aristocrats who could raise men on their behalf. Um, we know that the Kakatiyas that the armies of these kind of local warlords tended to have both infantry and cavalry and could sometimes be positioned in various parts of the Kakatiya domains. And sometimes local uh, communities were actually asked to pay a tax directly to these soldiers. So all of these suggest that these guys are doing something very interesting, trying to do something very, very new. Um, They're creating essentially... Uh, many centuries before the later early modern empire, Vijayanagara, they're trying to create a system of uh, Nayankara, um, where they're essentially kind of giving territories directly to uh, individuals who are raising and maintaining forces on their behalf. And we see similar stuff happening in Odisha as well, for example. So um, it, it really seems that there's this, there's this very innovative polity that doesn't hold too much stock with pre-existing traditions and is trying to use all the means at their disposal uh, to consolidate and extend their power. You know, Anirudh, it really blows my mind to think that the Kakatiyas were pulling away from the weight of history and trying to create something new under the sun in this polity of theirs and that this has been largely forgotten today in popular discourse. Uh, We're going to come back after a really quick break to discuss more about this astonishing dynasty and its creative impulses. 
Welcome back. Anirudh, uh, you've talked about the Kakatiya's use of cavalry. In a sense, this is both old and new to me, old in the sense that dynasties and polities throughout the decade have consistently been fascinated with their cavalry. Uh, but it would seem to me that the Kakatiyas are using it in a very specific and, and really a novel way. Uh, is there a possibility to make a similar case for the tanks that were built uh, during Kakatiya period? Uh, you know, dynasties typically have tanks built to increase agricultural productivity, increase their revenues thereby. Is there something new that we see in the project for building tanks under the Kakatiyas? Is it possible to discern a centralizing impulse, perhaps? Centralizing, I mean, the the case of centralization is a little more difficult to make in the in the case of tank building, uh, because you don't very often see the Kakatiya dynasty themselves actually building tanks. Um, much more often, it is actually their local kind of subordinates who are involved in doing this. Um, it seems that there was this general kind of prestige associated with building and expanding tanks during the Kakatiya period. Uh, we know of over 38 tanks that were actually built uh, attested by inscriptions. And there must have been like dozens, if not like hundreds more, uh, whose inscription records haven't really survived. And all of this, the the all of this um, really massively extends the agricultural productivity of the Telangana region. Um, in fact, to this very day, uh, some of the largest water bodies in uh, Telangana, which is essentially a very kind of dry uh, peninsula region, is um, our Kakatiya lakes. For example, the Rampa Temple, which is the UNESCO World Heritage Site, was actually um, associated with with a tank, um, which was um, constructed with a bund over two thousand feet long and kind of surrounded by three lakes. It's so massive that you can go boating in it. Like it's 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 enormous. So really think of the kind of engineering capabilities that these people are bringing to the fore. Um, it's quite likely that they were drawing on expertise that had originated in other parts of the Deccan and they're kind of bringing it to Telangana, teaching themselves, training themselves, and then kind of using it to extend their own power. It's also interesting because uh, this leads to kind of a more uh, broad-based economic growth as well. Uh, we see a number of communities from Telangana this time, uh, especially merchants, women, and pastoralists, uh, all making small, small donations to various temples, especially in coastal Andhra. Um, so it appears that the extension of Kakatiya power like kind of helped people circulate in larger amounts, um, encouraged the movement of people uh, between coastal Andhra and inland Telangana, and also um, kind of made the region far more agriculturally productive than it had hitherto been. It suggested, of course, that population growth was also a consequence of this kind of agrarian expansion. The sources will not allow us, unfortunately, to make a solid uh, conclusion on that front. But it's certainly, again, like quite possible. The extent to which the to which individuals associated with the Kakatiyas are doing this is pretty much unprecedented uh, compared to other regions of the Deccan, as far as I know. And the extent of this agrarian transformation is so comprehensive that that to this day, um, this uh, this undertaking or this project that the Telangana government has been embarking on to extend irrigation systems in Telangana today is actually named after the Kakatiyas. So once again, you can see these very innovative individuals who are taking elements of the old and fusing it with ideas that are new and using it to um, extend their power, extend agricultural, economic productivity, and and by extension, um, just be more effective and more powerful rulers. Wow, uh, that is that's that's that is amazing. Uh, I, another lasting legacy, of course, of the Kakatiyas that we can see today is the Rudreshwara Temple. Anirudh, can you just tell us who built it uh, and tell us something about the temple? What is it about the structure that stands out? 
So the Rudraishra temple really exemplifies a lot of these ideas and themes that I've been talking about. Um, for example, um, I mentioned the Brahmapa or Rudraishra Lake, uh, which was built by the same individual who commissioned the Rudraishra temple. And though the Rudraishra is often called a Kakatiya temple, and it, it really isn't technically speaking, it's really built by this individual called Rachel Larudra, who is a local warlord who is loyal and who serves as a general of the Kakatiya king Ganapati Deva. But otherwise, is essentially a magnate in his own right. He is also giving land grants to his officers. Um, he has a number of loyal clansmen uh, who are who are connected directly to him and who kind of raise troops and maintain them on his behalf. So, for all intents and purposes, um, Rud- uh, Rachel Rudra is essentially um, a vassal king or a sub king of the Kakatiya Imperial Network. Um, the reason why he commissions this temple in the in the particular way that he does um, is again tied to these ideas of uh, of prestige and merit and status that we mentioned earlier in the podcast, and the particular form that the temple takes is also tied to uh, the architectural innovations of the Western Deccan during the height of the Kalyana Chalukya period during the 11th century, especially. We see a vast number of temples being commissioned by local elites, generally in the Raichur region, as well as in the metropolitan Kalyana region. And the kind of underlying architectural logic of all of these temples is emanation or projection. Um, if you were to look carefully at these temples, you'd, also, you'd always see that they're very symmetrical around their axis, uh, around their cardinal directions. Um, you see there's this effect that is created through the kind of layering of various architectural forms that makes it seem like the temples are almost emanating from the central axis. And if you take one look at the Ramapa temple, um, and I'll put a link to this architectural diagram I worked on with a friend of mine, uh, Shashank Mauli, um, in the description, if, if, you're, if you're interested, um, where you can actually see very clearly, if you look at the Vimana or the temple spire of the, of the Rudrishwara, you see this clear sense of, of projection in, in the four cardinal directions from the center. In comparison to um, the Hoysalas, who are also a successor state of the Chalukyas, um, the Kakatiyas are also using a much harder varieties of stone. So they're using uh, this beautiful black basalt or, or sandstone, uh, which isn't really great for um, extremely fine Baroque uh, decorations like what you see on Hoysala temples. Um, in fact, if you look at a Hoysala temple, you're kind of overwhelmed almost by the sheer amount of cultural profusion on these walls. Whereas if you look at a Kakatiya temple, the walls are much more austere, much more elegant. There's a sense of rhythm that is imparted to it um, by the usage of blank space as well as um, very subtle kind of architectural forms, um, which is which again is just so fascinating. It kind of tells you that um, just as organisms kind of evolve from a common ancestor, uh, both the Hoysala and the Kakatiya styles, if we can call them that, or really more accurately, both the late medieval Southern Deccan and Eastern Deccan styles, um, though they originate in the West Central Deccan, um, Take on their very take on very unique kind of um, ideas and very unique aesthetic concepts, uh, which are tied to local means of production, local materials, um, and so on. So, um, just just looking at the at the, the Rudeshwara temple just tells you so much. It tells you about uh, the nature of this polity. It tells you about um, the the way that vassal kings under the Kakatiya saw themselves. It tells you about um, who they saw as their antecedents. And it also tells you about, you know, if you see it in, in, in association with its local tank, um, it also tells you more about the agrarian policies and the ag- agrarian expansion that happened during the Kakatiya period. Um, if you try to think about Rachela Rudra as a vassal king, you realize that this individual probably participated in many of Ganapati Deva's 
campaigns along the East Coast, um, became wealthy through his campaigns there and is therefore trying to invest this wealth in order to try and create prestige for himself, try to create a new economic center for his dynasty by building this temple. So it, it really deserves the UNESCO World Heritage Site status because within itself, it is really a microcosm of this uh, fascinating and now extent polity. Sadir, uh, can you tell us uh, what happens after the time of Ganapati Deva between his death and uh, the coming of the Delhi Sultanate? Again, these are very interesting centuries for Southern India as a whole and really Telangana in particular. Um, quite uniquely, in generally in Indian history, you see that Ganapati Deva succeeded directly uh, by his daughter, uh, Rudrama Devi. And Rudrama Devi is a most fascinating individual because she is by all accounts a most extraordinary and most capable ruler. Um, she she centralizes the Kakatiya state further. Uh, in fact, she's the one who kind of moves away from Ganapati Deva's attempts to kind of project themselves as this great imperial uh, Sanskritic power center. And you see her instead kind of trying to create an image of herself as this martial king. Um, in some of her inscriptions, she's actually called Rudra Deva. And she is depicted usually as Durga riding a lion uh, in the few temples that she is known to have commissioned. Uh, but unfortunately, these are uh, this is medieval India. It's not the most enlightened of times. Um, she faces a number of rebellions in inland Telangana and Rayal Seema, um, which are led by, again, this powerful local dynast who, who apparently, um, despite Rudrama Devi's military successes, are simply not okay with being ruled over by a woman. So much of her reign is actually spent in trying to subjugate these local power centers. According to some sources, she actually dies in battle fighting against some of these local warlords. But her grandson, Pratapurudra, is, again, like most uh, remarkable, most effective individual. By Pratapurudra's time, if you were to look at inscriptions that are composed um, across much of the region that was once united Andhra Pradesh, we see more, you see a higher percentage of local elites than ever before for any other Kakatiya ruler actually claiming direct allegiance to Pratapurudra, um, which is absolutely fascinating and tells you that by Pratapurudra's time, um, regardless of the reverses suffered by Rudra Mahadevi, that the Kakadiyas were increasingly being seen as the default imperial dynasty of the Telugu-speaking countries. And Pratapurudra, again, is a very, very effective ruler, very, very military, militarily capable. Um, he vastly increases the amount of cavalry that is at the command of the Kakatiya state. He um, embarks on expeditions, um, especially towards the south. He does a lot of stuff in the Tamil country, sacks a lot of uh, cities, expects extends his territory quite substantially. Um, but of course, when the Delhi Sultanate arrives, uh, partially due to the assistance of uh, the Kakatiya's deadly rivals, the Sene Advas of Maharashtra, he's a little bit on the back foot. And um, he there's there is quite a there is a long-lasting siege on the city of Warangal. And um, one of the most significant outcomes of the siege is that Pratapurudra is forced to concede a significant amounts of gold, but is also forced to concede massive numbers of cavalry. He is forced to give up his horses um, to Malik Kafur, uh, who was allowed in Khilji's general. And uh, of course, we talk about this in much more uh, much more detail in um, in our in our military history podcast, Yudha. So you should definitely go and check that out if you're interested. Um, but I'd just like to like quickly dwell on this point about um, horses being used as tribute because 
horses in the medieval world were extremely expensive animals um you had to get them at uh, at great expense from vast distances um they very often were not well suited to indian climatic conditions because especially the kakatiyas these guys were probably kind of importing horses uh, that were uh, that were originally from the tibetan plateau and so on and to be they were importing them at large numbers they they you had to invest a lot in kind of training and individuals to kind of to ride them and to be effective cavalrymen and malik kafur by taking horses in such large numbers from the kakatiyas was essentially stripping them of all their military power um without cavalry the kakatiya ruler could not uh, effectively kind of force um local power centers to be loyal to him because he could not quickly send a force there to uh, compel them to do so um he could not rapidly exp- extend his power into into tamil nadu or deeper into coastal andhra um and he could not really face the armies of delhi sultanate in open battle um which is why later on in his rule he seems to tend to pretend he seems to prefer to fight the delhi sultanate from his bastion at warangal rather than out in the open field um but this 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 the single deft geopolitical move essentially ends the fortunes of what was south india's most innovative dynasty and if left to itself probably would have been one of the most dominant powers of southern and eastern india so all in all it is just it's just an amazing story the kakatiyas are just such a bloody fascinating dynasty uh, they come out of nowhere and they vanish into almost nothing um, but their legacy is felt for many many centuries after uh, both the qutub shahis of golconda and vijayanagara um both try to attach themselves to the legacy of the kakatiyas they left a, quite a poetic impression on generations upon generations of telugu literatures and um, as we can see to this day when the telangana state emblem is one of the great gateways of the former swayambhu shiva temple at warangal uh, and also the charminar they retain that allure and kind of romanticism uh, that um that they had during their reign amazing you know uh, it's it's really striking to me that you have this uh, uh a dynasty this kingdom arising out of nothing uh, really seeking its own legitimacy in the chalukya past and then you see its successors doing the same thing uh, so you know that's that's a recurring theme as was in indian history mm-hmm. one reason i'm really glad that we had this episode anirudh is because one of my big bugaboos about say popular history in india is this whole idea that the main story of indian history is when these big consolidated empires arise that uh, dominate a large portion of the subcontinent hmm. i think that's completely the wrong way to look, look at indian history as both you and i have discussed uh, you know some of the greatest re- religious innovations some social upheavals political ideas military innovation all occur actually in uh, times of so called fragmentation when you have smaller kingdoms throughout the subcontinent right, right. and in a sense that is actually the main story i agree and um, this is the kakati also kind of confound our expectations in many ways right generally when we think about um india before the delhi sultanate it's it's very often held to be this kind of rigid unchanging uh, place which was which was just so brittle that even the slightest kind of nudge from the delhi sultanate would lead led to the whole thing kind of collapsing like a like a pack of cards right. uh, sorry or like a house of cards um but the kakatiyas absolutely defy that because they are a remarkably innovative polity in every single way and um it, the reason why they were defeated by delhi is not that the delhi sultanate was necessary necessarily any more innovative but rather because delhi essentially had them in a strategic vice from which they were unable to escape 
Uh, their power was so dependent on this single military resource that being deprived of this resource essentially meant that they could not continue their polity the way it was. And there are so many lessons for, for the way that we think about uh, geopolitics, the way we think about innovation, the way more broadly we think about Indian history because the Kakatiyas, as we said in, in our episode about uh, what if Vijayanagara had, had, had won Aditya, we said that um, if history does not make you uncomfortable, then you're reading it wrong. And the Kakatiyas, if you if you come at it from this unified North India-centric, um, stable golden age India, where all parts of India are the same and everything is all majestic and measured and changes at a very, very slow pace, um, the Kakatiyas will make you very uncomfortable and force you to kind of revise a lot of your ideas about how Indian kingship could work and what Indian kingship could be um, when it was under the charge of these very interesting upstart local dynasties. Absolutely. The idea that uh, Indian history moves at a stately pace is uh, quite wrong, basically. <laughs> but yeah, uh, so thanks a lot, Anirudh. I just absolutely love these discussions that we have uh, discussing, you know, these aspects of Indian history that are often uh, forgotten. And uh, it, we'll have a link to Cynthia Talbot's book uh, in the description. Uh, definitely check it out. And uh, thank you so much, Anirudh. My pleasure. And thank you all for joining us on All Things Policy. The Takshashila Institution is an independent, non-partisan think tank and a school of public policy. We have education programs lasting one semester and one year that are tailored specifically for people like you. They are all online and you can take them from anywhere. Admissions are now open for our 12-week graduate certificate program in public policy, defense and foreign affairs, technology policy and health and life sciences. Visit takshashila.org.in courses to find out more. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app, ivmpodcast.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy, and economic affairs, Check us out at our Twitter handle at Takshashila INST or our website takshashila.org.in.